Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. I'm glad you're here this morning. We're continuing our series, God at the Movies, uh, where we look for scriptural truths and everyday things, in this case, uh, movies. It's the name of the series. Usually when this is done, we like to watch new movies or look at current films, but since the world has been shut down, a lot of us haven't been back to a movie theater. How many of you guys remember what that was like? Yes, remember? How many of you have been since the... Yeah? Oh, good. Good. Some of you get out. That's awesome. I haven't uh, in a while. Uh, I like to stay at home, though, so that's okay. Um, but that doesn't stop us from digging out some classics and rewatching them, or in my case, for the first time. I'd never seen Cars before three weeks ago when I watched it for the first time. Cars came out in 2006. For those of you whose mental calendars don't calibrate properly, like mine, it was 15 years ago. How many of you thought when I said 2006 that was 15 years ago? No, you just think, oh, that was just a few years ago. Yeah, multiply that by a few more. So I saw Cars for the first time, and it, uh, it focuses on Lightning McQueen, the little red car, a young up-and-coming superstar racer who's trying to make his mark on the racing world by winning the Piston Cup, the prized possession of the, of the racing world in this world. Um, and he has loads of potential and tons of talent and all the arrogance that comes with being the hot commodity and rising star in his sport. And his arrogance costs him a guaranteed Piston Cup win when he skips a pit stop toward the end with a big lead and he has to hop to the finish line. Instead of winning, there's a three-way tie and they have to have another race in California the following week. For Lightning, winning is everything. But he may or may not realize that his own Cavalier, Maverick, loner mindset has cost him what he wanted the most. And we are not all that unlike lightning. We have our idea of what winning is. For some, it's financial security. For others, status. For others still, it's carefully crafting an outward image or a persona online for people to see and admire and envy while behind the social media accounts we struggle with our own worth. For some, sadly, it's pulling others down on our way to the top because life's rat race, baby. If I'm going to succeed, you have to lose. We'll do anything and justify anything to make it happen. This morning, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5. So if you have your copy of the scriptures uh, or your favorite Bible app, go ahead and open that up or swipe that open. And uh, we'll be in Galatians chapter 5. The text will be on the screen, but I do want to encourage you to follow along uh, in your copy or on your app. I'll be reading from the ESV. It's okay if you're reading from a different version. A few of the words will be different, but that's okay. We're going to talk about those in just a minute. We're going to start in verse 13. You were called to be free. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I love that phrase that Paul chooses there. Don't bite and devour one another. And if you do, be careful that you don't devour one another. A little sarcasm, I think, on Paul's part. We're called to freedom in Christ. We're called to to be free in Christ. And that freedom is not so that we can satisfy or indulge our flesh to do what we want, 
to do everything for me, to look out for number one. What does Paul say? What's our freedom for? To serve one another in love. This is the great commandment that we've been talking about for many weeks, that we should talk about in some way every week, because it's at the heart of the gospel. It's the great commandment when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? They're trying to trap him. Remember, we've been talking about this for the last couple of months. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is just like it, just as important, not secondary to, love your neighbor as yourself. What that means is for you to love the people around you as much as you love yourself. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify, gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. In other words, these things are opposites. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit are opposed to one another. They're opposing Forces, they're opposing desires. They do not work together and cannot coexist. And specifically, Paul narrows this down to serving one another or serving our own desires. To keep you from doing the things that you want to do, that may call you back to Romans chapter 7 where Paul goes sort of, it seems like, on a tangent where he talks about the struggle with the flesh and with sin and how I do the things I hate and I can't do the things that I want. I don't want to do these things, but I keep doing them. I want to do these things, but I can't do them because there's this struggle. It's the old self versus the new, to take off the old, to put on the new, that Paul writes about, that the New Testament theme. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, Paul says. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right, Paul. Tap the brakes. What? I want, to, I want to be real clear about what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying here that if you have ever done any of these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. What Paul is saying here is this is the life that you live to satisfy the desires of the flesh always, only. You're not born of the Spirit because the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit are opposite. Will we struggle? Yeah. That's part of sanctification. The work of Christ is good and it is perfect and it is final. And if we're in the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit, Scripture says. We're sanctified through our whole lives from the first moment that we come to Christ until we draw our last breath. We will struggle against the old self. We're not to read this legalistically and say, if I've ever done any of these things, I cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That brings Christ's work down to our level. 
But if you live this life uninterrupted, if your desires for the flesh are always being satisfied with no struggle, Paul is suggesting here and elsewhere that you've not been born of the Spirit. When he says you'll not inherit the kingdom of God, that's what he means. These works are evident, and they are self-serving, all of them. Let's look at a couple of these words. Sexual immorality, we get, uh, that's from the Greek word porneia, from which we get our English word pornography. Uh, specifically, the term meant trafficking with harlots or prostitution. But in a broader range, means any kind of sexual immorality. Impurity. This has a wider meaning than just sexual purity. I think because these words are grouped together here, we tend to read them in, with, the same, with the same thought. And they can include that, but think wider. When you read this word impurity, I want you to think integrity. If something is pure, it has integrity. If something is impure, it does not. Sensuality also carries more meaning than just sexual or physical. It means doing whatever one wants at any time without regard for what it might cost them or someone else. An older English translation might use the word wantonness, the unapologetic flaunting of self-indulgence with a come-at-me-bro, take-it-or-leave-it, this-is-who-I-am attitude. And this flies in the face of Scripture's call into the gospel to take off the old self, and it stands in opposition to the Spirit's work of ongoing sanctification, which is the molding of us into the likeness of Christ. Idolatry can be straight-up idol worship or more subtly anything that receives more attention in our lives than God. Enmity and strife, active hostility between groups or persons, and not just the acts of hostility, but the underlying attitudes that produce these acts. Political, cultural, racial, religious differences often produce these attitudes and the actions that follow from them. But thank goodness we've moved away from that in our day. Self-serving jealousy. And then there's a group of words that kind of mash together for one big idea. They obviously have their own meanings, but it's this idea of fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, setting yourself against another or positioning someone against you or a third party to suit your purposes for your own benefit. Or even, even more sadly, just for the satisfaction of watching it happen. Alfred says to Bruce Wayne in the dark night, some men just want to watch the world burn. And that's true. For people who stir up division just for the sake of it. Throwing tantrums when you don't get your way and making others suffer who kept you from getting what you wanted. Envy is a word, sometimes it gets mixed up with having the same meaning as jealousy. Jealousy can be negative. It can also be, it can also have positive connotations. There are positive kinds of jealousy. God describes himself as a jealous God. His jealousy for us is holy. Envy never carries any positive connotation at all. And envy is the feeling 
of discontentment when someone else is successful. You can't stand to see somebody else succeed, whether or not it has anything to do with you. It's envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Just in case Paul's readers want to take a legalistic route and say, well, the things that I do aren't on this list, so they're cool. Paul says, man, anything similar to any of this, you can go ahead and include it. I'm sure Paul didn't have the parchment space to write down every self-indulgent action or thought or idea. But he hit some pretty major ones on the head, and he said in things like these. And just he anticipated that because in a lot of Paul's letters, he is writing to young Christians, young churches, about the legalism that they're facing from, from without. And so these are the works of the flesh, which are evident, Paul says. They serve one purpose, to satisfy yourself. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there's no law. How many of you learned the fruits of the Spirit at VBS at some point in your life? Did y'all sing it? Did y'all sing that at VBS this year? You did? Hannah did. Hannah's like, yeah, of course we did. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Come on. Gentleness and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience. Not doing it? Okay. <clears throat> I shouldn't be either. <clears throat> Let's look at those. Let's look at these words, too. Love, this is where our passage started. This is the central idea in the gospel. We've already talked about it. It's in Matthew. It's the great commandment to love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Joy is the deep satisfaction and delight that comes in trusting God's ultimate love and plan. Whereas happiness, with which this idea is often confused, are tied. happiness is tied typically to circumstances. Whereas joy we can have in spite of our circumstances. Paul writes, sorry, James writes, consider it pure joy when you encounter many trials. What? That's kind of ridiculous. James, why would you write that? Because it's producing something in you. Don't have joy for the, for the sake of the trial itself, but for what it's producing in you. Talked weeks ago about Romans 8:28, all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. It does not say all things that happen are good, but that God can work all things together for good. And we can rejoice in that. We can have satisfaction in believing that God is who he says he is and that he's doing what he says he's doing. Peace, stillness, satisfaction, contentment of the heart, the mind, the soul, and the chaos of the world. Paul writes to the Romans that the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. He writes elsewhere in Romans, as much as it concerns you, be at peace with all men. And Jesus himself said, blessed 
are the peacemakers. For they're the sons and the daughters of God. Patience, kindness, goodness, in this sense, is not a measure of your personal status. How good you are or how good you want people to think you are. Your personal level of holiness. Goodness is the outward working of good to the people around you. This word can also mean or carry the connotation of generosity, not only financially or materially, but also with your time, with your attention, with your investment, with, the, with your care, with your affection. Faithfulness has two meanings, and likely both are intended here. Our faithfulness in God, not only unto salvation, but in the daily, in the momentary, in the ongoing commitment of obedience to walk in the good things that God has laid before us to walk in. To not just believe in our hearts, ultimately, big picture that God is who he says he is and that he's doing what he's doing, but that we believe that so much that we walk in step with what he has planned out for us. It can also mean being trustworthy. Being worthy of trust. This, is the, this, is, this means integrity. This is the opposite of impurity from the previous list. Gentleness and self-control, which is sort of the catch-all term for this list. So the works of the flesh are self-serving, intended to gratify ourselves at all times. The fruit of the Spirit we see are intended to benefit and to grow others around us. The implication here is that there are others in our lives who can benefit from this fruit that God is working in us and out of us. We were never meant to live in isolation as followers of Christ. Not ever. We are intended to grow, to do this together. Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. To keep moving with God. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, calling back to the other things. Don't bite and devour one another. Don't consume each other. Remember verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any, of, in, in any transgression, says ESV, but I, if, if anyone is caught in any of these transgressions, is the idea, you should what? Ridicule them and talk about them behind their backs. And make sure that people know that they've done these things. And make vague social media posts. And gossip about people, veiled in prayer requests. And think less of them and judge them. No, no. Sorry, that's not what this says. It says, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch over yourself also, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. A few weeks ago, we talked about this. I was talking about discipleship. This is the same idea. Bearing one another's burdens means to help carry. You ever see like 
movies or war footage of someone who's been wounded and there's another soldier that has them under their arms. They're carrying them off the battlefield. They are bearing that person's burden to get down. The illustration I used a few weeks ago is to get down in the mud of life with people and to move through it and to pull each other out. To bear one another's burdens, Paul says, is how we fulfill the law of Christ, which is what? To love God with all our heart, our soul, with all our mind, our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the law of Christ. Paul says this is how we do it. We make it too complicated. Because while the gospel call is simple, it's extraordinarily difficult. bear one another's burdens, and in humility, I would suggest the converse, to allow others to help you bear yours. Jesus is our example here. In Matthew, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is light. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what Jesus is talking about right here in this moment when he says that is he's, he's talking about the, the need of these people to proceed, need to fulfill the law. Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you rest. Trade me yokes. You take my yoke and I'll bear your burden. And I'll take it with me to the cross. This is our example. Jesus also said that greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And most of us won't even turn off the TV for our friends. Much less do anything that could even be remotely described as partially self-sacrificial. After losing the race at the beginning of the movie, lightning is faced with his own decisions and the consequences of those decisions. His pit crew that he doesn't use, they quit. He doesn't like his sponsors. They're not good enough for him. On the trailer to California, his agent says, hey, i got a batch of tickets to this race for your family and friends. Who do you want me to send them to? And he can't think of anybody. Because he doesn't have any friends. He doesn't have any relationship. He ends up mistakenly in Radiator Springs. If you guys have seen the movie, I apologize, but... I hadn't seen it until three weeks ago. So. He ends up mistakenly in Radiator Springs. He's forced to do community service because he tore up the roads. And so at first all he wants to do is get the heck out of there. But he's forced to stay and do the work. And the longer he stays, the more he gets to know the people that live there. And he starts to change. His perspective starts to shift. And he does leave for California for his big race. But before he does so, he visits every shop in town. He helps them rebuild and fix their neon signs, which apparently was a big deal. He buys tires from the tire guy. He gets a paint job from the paint shop. He stops everywhere in town to help the people that helped him while he was there. He's starting to change. Community is changing his perspective. During the race, he's distracted 
from his once singular focused goal of winning the Piston Cup. As he's racing, all he can think about is the little town of Radiator Springs, the girl he met, and the friends he made. And he's losing the race. He's not even there mentally. Until in his ear is old Doc, who's on his pit crew stand. They've come to help him win the race. They get him back in position for a sure win. And just as he's about to cross the finish line, Chick Hicks knocks King out of the race into the infield, beats him up real bad. It was supposed to be King's last race. He was going to retire. Lightning is going to win. He's going to get the Dynaco sponsorship. It's going to be a big deal. He's going to have everything he ever wanted. He sees what happened, and he stops just shy of the finish line. And he lets Chick blast past him for the win. He turns around. He goes to the infield and pushes King across the finish line. King says, what are you doing, kid? He says, I just think that a man ought to be able to finish his last race. Winning still matters to lightning. But it looks different. Now, with a new perspective, winning isn't crossing the finish line first. It's crossing the finish line well. Now there are relationships involved. Now there are character issues. And yeah, he probably knows that he can win the next one. But he gives it up to do the right thing. Being in a community of Jesus following believers will have that effect on us. Scripture says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. And likewise, living in community with others who are following Jesus will build you up to encourage you. Hebrews 10 says, let us consider then how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to what? Meet together. That's a community. That's not just a service where you come and listen to somebody talk. Meeting together in close relationship. This is how we stir one another up to love and good works. One of my favorite verses in all the scripture is Philippians 2.3. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. I don't think it can be said better than that. In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Why? Because I don't matter? No. Because they matter more to you than you. This is counterintuitive. It goes against our nature. The world is a rat race, dog eat dog, I win at your expense, gladiator arena. From the moment we take our first breath, we're fending for ourselves because we're infants. Our desires are for ourselves, I should say. We're not fending for ourselves. Our desires are for ourselves. I need to be held. I need to be fed. I need to be changed. And some of us never grow out of that stage of infancy. 
in a Christian community. We're not playing a zero-sum game. The world tells us if you win, I lose. But that's not what we're chasing. That's not the pattern we want to follow. Romans 12 says don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world. When we lock arms together in community and follow Jesus together, we discover that winning looks different. We discover that when you win, I win. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And I love how Jesus turns our worldview upside down so often. Everything about Jesus' life signifies humility. I came to serve, not to be served. He said, to be first, you must first be last. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Lay down your life, your friends. I pray that you would teach us to latch on to this idea. God, give us the strength and the discipline to take off the old self daily, every moment, and to put on the new self. Give us the eyes to see that we can stay in step with the Spirit. And the ears to hear where you're leading us.